Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, we must run with endurance. Uh, no doubt you're familiar with the metaphor that the Christian life is like a race to be run. And endurance is absolutely necessary for us to reach the finish line. So let me read our text, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord lo loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, if it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds through your word today and that uh, you would overcome my weakness and insufficiency in this and, Father, that you would encourage us today and lift us up, even in correction, uh, that we might know that we belong to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, perhaps um, these verses and this metaphor here of running a race brings to mind the athletic spectacles of that day. Uh, the Roman culture was entertainment-oriented, very much like ours. And part of that entertainment was uh, athletic games and races, much like ours. And 
in the larger cities was held in large stadiums uh, that held thousands of people. And it's easy when we begin to think about this to think of runners clad in light clothing, wearing light running shoes, uh, running for all they're worth on a level track in a stadium um, with the crowd cheering them on. And they begin at the starting block and they end at the finish line and one of those runners is the winner, uh, winning the first place prize. But that picture does not really completely fit with what the writer has in mind here. We are running a race for sure. It's a long distance race for most of us. And the track isn't level. The conditions are not optimal. And there is opposition along the way from without and from within our own hearts. And sometimes we find it that our, our eyes have wandered from the finish line and we stop. The writer tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud, a multitude, in other words, of witnesses. They're witnesses, they're not spectators. The Greek word here is martis, which, from which we get our word martyr, and that word simply means a witness, one who bears testimony to what is true. Now we use that word to refer to those who are put to death for their testimony of Jesus Christ. But the writer here does not use it only of those who have suffered persecution and death, but also of those who have won great victories through their faith and their testimony. So it's not death or victory that he has in mind here. It is their testimony. What are they telling us? Now, who are these witnesses? Well, he's reaching back and he's gathering up all the men and women that he just talked about in Hebrews 11. Those who from the beginning had faith in God. In other words, they trusted in God's solemn covenant promise that he would send a deliverer to save them from their sins and from the curse of eternal death and bring them to his eternal home. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses' mother and father, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, and others. Men and women, he says, too numerous and not enough time to mention all of them. And all of these had testified to that same truth. They had lived in faith in light of that truth. And this great cloud of witnesses is speaking something that we also need to hear. Rather, maybe they have spoken already, and God has seen fit to preserve their testimony and the record of their lives in the scriptures. And maybe it would be easy to think that they are watching us and cheering us on. You know, you can think of a great swell of voices uh, rising from them as each believer approaches the finish line having fought the good fight and having kept the faith. But do they see us running? Maybe they do, I don't know. Would they cheer us on if they could? Likely so. But if they could speak to us today, I think they would say something like this. 
You must lay aside every weight, and you must lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares you, and you must run with endurance the race that is set before you and fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ alone. You must. So let us lay aside, then, every weight, every weight. The Greek word here, weight, um, is used, can be used for something that is large and bulky and heavy. But the sense here is of something that hinders or impedes us from doing something, an impediment. So that, that definition should give us some sense of what the writer means here. What are these weights? Well, he doesn't get specific. And that might seem frustrating, frustrating to me. But one commentator writes this. It is by running that the Christian learns what these things are. As long as he just stands in place, he does not feel that these weights are burdensome and encumbering. It is by running that the Christian learns what these things are. Now, I love to read detailed Civil War history, and you can read stories of new soldiers, new recruits, marching off in the springtime on their first campaign. They don't have experience, and so here they're, they're carrying things. They have an overcoat, perhaps, that's useful in winter, but it's not useful now. Maybe they're carrying an extra pair of shoes and some clothing. Useful, but not needed right now. And maybe they're carrying table settings that they used in their winter camp, or books, or who knows what all kinds of things they would be tempted to carry along with them. But as the day warmed up and the march continued mile after dusty mile, then each man began to take inventory, and soon the roadside was just littered with valuable items that had been judged to be unnecessary and encumbering. But at the same time, that same soldier was also carrying heavy things that he should not throw away, like his rifle and bayonet weighing 12 and a half pounds, his canteen filled with water, 40 rounds of ammunition, three days rations in his haversack, his blanket in his ground cloth, and so discernment and wisdom and self-discipline are needed so that the necessary equipment is kept and unnecessary things then are what is discarded. The soldier is marching into battle. He's not going on vacation. And so his equipment must serve his purpose. And I think from experience in athletics, we all understand that there's a need even to reduce body weight if we're going to run very far in this long distance race and actually are able to cross the finish line without collapsing sometime between the start and the finish. This finish line that is sometimes miles and years down the road. So to prepare for the race, to get in shape for the race, we have to lay aside the unnecessary things that impede our progress. It's by running that the Christian learns what these things are. So God is wise. He, he leads us through this, 
and it uses our experiences to teach us along the way to evaluate what needs to be cast off when something that maybe was formerly okay, something formerly useful now needs to go by the wayside. What is unnecessary, what is distracting us, or what is sapping our energy and exhausting us and bringing us to a halt. Sometimes we need a word from outside of us, like the writer of the Hebrews, to stand up and speak boldly and confront us with the need to cast off everything that impedes us. In fact, Jesus Christ warns us of this danger, that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this life may choke the word. That's how they are going to operate, and we could become unfruitful, bear no fruit. So to become unfruitful is to stop growing in the Lord is the same thing as coming to a halt on the racetrack. We cannot escape the cares of this world. We have to deal with wealth and money and resources. And um, many of the pleasures of this life are not sinful in and of themselves, and we can enjoy them. But the impediment comes in how they consume our attention and our strength and our sense of love. They, they become a God that we bow down to and we submit to, and we begin to give them affection and love that they should not have. These things must be kept in their proper place or they begin to impede our real priorities, and we may have to leave them by the side of the road sometimes difficult decisions. Lay aside every weight and lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. So lay aside, it means to lay it down, to cast it off, to get rid of, of it. This sin that so easily ensnares us. And, and here again, the writer doesn't describe exactly what he has in mind, but really he doesn't need to because uh, the scriptures, especially the New Testament, describe sin in great detail, um, including its personal and public impact and God's righteous judgment of it. So the writer here actually is just saying in a very summary form what the other apostles said. Like Paul here writes more expanded in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. If you were raised with Christ... Well, then seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above and not on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And with, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So set aside these weights that are earthly, that impede, and, and set your mind on things above. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these, these all these, anger, wrath, malice, Blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put off the new man put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit or the sins of the mind put off put on you know sometimes we we get into an unhealthy way of thinking that that we're helpless to stop acting on sinful thoughts and impulses. And certainly, we know that they are strong, right? These thoughts and impulses come to us unbidden. We didn't ask them to come, but there they are. And what are we going to do with them? And James writes this about that. James 1, verses 14 through 16 But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's describing the way that sin so easily ensnares us. What happens if we don't cast off sin, but instead keep fiddling with it and thinking about it and uh, touching it and not letting it go. There's, there's an outcome. There's, it, it grows. And so we must lay sin aside. Don't be deceived. Our problem is that we love sin and we don't want to lay it aside. But if the farmer has to get up and take action to plant seed in the ground to reap a harvest and take advantage of the benefit of this multiplying power of life that God has put in little tiny seeds, then we must also take action to put off the old man and put on the new man in order to reap a harvest of spiritual growth and bear fruit. We must. So the writer here is maybe like a coach. And he's not making suggestions. He's not throwing out a few good ideas that have worked for him or some others and maybe might work for us. No, he's getting in our face, so to speak, and warning us, telling us what we must do in order to endure in the race. If we don't lay aside and cast away the sin that is entangling us, it will ensnare us, it'll trip us up, and we will fall. We will backslide. What then? What do we do when we have been ensnared and entangled and have fallen? What do we do when we have failed to take heed of the warning signs along the road and we find ourselves in a bloody heap at the bottom of a cliff? seemingly dead to Christ. What then? Is there hope for us? Well, we do the the one thing that we did at the beginning. We turn to the one who died for our sins, who was buried and who was raised to life. We turn to Jesus Christ, who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's the one who can restore life, heal broken bones, bind up wounds, 
And it's he himself who is telling us to lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily ensnares us. We're called to action. But we know we're not saved by our actions, by our efforts, right? But we're still called to action. But we're not alone in this. It is by the Holy Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. And there must be a heart change. There must be a change of affections and desires for us to even want to lay this aside. And so this is the work of the Holy Spirit, changing our hearts, changing what we love, so that we can actually begin then to hate sin and love righteousness and lay these things aside. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So here's this call to endurance. And endurance is the capacity to hold out or to bear up and continue on in the face of difficulty or pressure or calamity or evil. And so there's patience in endurance. There is active persistence. There's a refusal to give in or surrender under hardship and pain. And long-distance runners sometimes face this point at which they have to push through the temptation to give up and stop when their body is telling them that it's time to stop right now. But to reach the finish line, they cannot stop. They must endure. And we are in a race. And all athletic contests have some element of contention and striving, a a contest for mastery and victory with winners and losers. But the race we're in is not about winning first place. It's about victory over sin. It's about reaching the goal, reaching the finish line. And so, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run then in such a way that you may win. Now, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's a call to endurance and effort. Holy Spirit inspired uh, by the love we have for our Lord and Savior and our hope for this goal at the end. Looking unto Jesus, 
We run with endurance, looking unto Jesus. So we lay aside impediments and sin. We endure and strive because we see that there is one standing at the finish line. We're looking unto Jesus, and we fix our gaze upon him. The Greek word here, to look, has embedded in it this idea of turning the eyes away from one thing and then fixing the eyes on something else. So the writer here knows that some eyes have, are no longer looking at Jesus. They're looking elsewhere. Why have the eyes turned away from Christ? Well, in the case here of the book of Hebrews, uh, it was written to Jewish believers who were under persecution and severe pressure to renounce Christ and go back to Judaism. So to renounce Christ then would be to redeem their reputation and uh, restore family relationships and perhaps stop the confiscation of their goods and possibly save their lives. And they could go back to maybe something more comfortable in trusting in ceremonies and rituals and their ancestry instead of being out in the light of Christ and having their sin continually exposed by the word of God. Isn't that our experience? You know, we, we come to church and our sin just keeps getting exposed. And I don't know, the older I get, the more I understand just what a wretch I am. But thank God that he has not abandoned me. I have hope. That's what being out in the light does to us believers. So, but it's not, this is not the only pressure on believers in the New Testament era. Colossians, Paul describes this allure of deceptive philosophies that are built up around self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, as if that would somehow help stop sinning. And 1 John, John describes the, this allure of Gnostic beliefs that asserts that sin is not man's problem. And that took hold in such a way that many left the church. John's describing that, and he's writing to help the church in the midst of this confusion and upheaval to understand what had happened. It's an important letter. <clears throat> and then um, Peter and Jude describe this full-blown heresy of those who turn the grace of God into lewdness right in the church. And so there are many pressures and temptations that we face the similar things today, these doctrines and thoughts that blow through the church. And so the answer, of course, is to lay aside the impediments and lay aside the sin and to fix our eyes upon Jesus and understand who he is and not turn our eyes away. So there is a prize awaiting us at the finish line. There's a prize. But what is it? Well, is it the crown of victory that we will receive? Is it the new body that's not subject to sin and death? And praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing that's ahead of us. Is it the new city whose builder and maker is God? In which there will be no pain and death, no sin. In other words, are we running to receive the benefits of a saved eternity? Is that really what we're running for? Is that our hope at the end? the prize we're hoping for. Actually, though, the prize that is awaiting us, redeemed sinners, 
is a far greater value and a more eternal weight of glory than that because the prize is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that has run the race ahead of us and opened up the way. He is the great warrior who conquered sin and death. He is the true and faithful witness through whom the Father is now speaking to us in these last days with greater clarity and power. And Jesus Christ, the great high priest who offered his own blood in the holy place and purged our sins. And there he is sitting on the right hand of God, sitting on a throne of power and authority, interceding for us. That's who is there at the finish line with arms open wide to receive redeemed sinners as they cross. The bridegroom of our souls, he is the prize. And all the blessings of a saved eternity are wrapped up in his efforts for us. It's him. And that's why this writer instructs us to look to Jesus. He is the, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He gave us this faith and he's going to finish it for us. We have hope because we know the one standing there with arms open to receive us. We look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So when he came into the world, he had a single purpose in his life, which he pursued, and that was to run a race that ended in the death of the cross. And he endured the cross, we're told here, and he despised the shame of it. That death was a very degrading, shameful thing, and that was one of the purposes of that death, is to shame the person hanging on the cross. But he took the weight of that cross and, and all that it represented, the weight of, of sin, the sin of his people, upon his shoulders, and he then patiently endured under that and bore up with persistent manly effort to the very end. And he did that, we're told, because there was joy awaiting him on the other side of that experience. A great and exceeding joy. And Jude writes of it as the, the, the exceeding and great and exalting joy of Jesus Christ when he presents us to himself in the presence of the Father. That's quite a, 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 an image to think about, a picture and really, there's no better way to understand this joy this, the, that was awaiting Jesus Christ than to compare it to the joy of a bridegroom over his bride. Have you ever watched a bridegroom watch his bride come down the aisle to him? You can see just a little glimpse of that kind of joy. That's the picture, actually, that's shown to us in the Old and New Testaments. The joy of a bridegroom. So he didn't die for the joy, but he, there was a joy awaiting him. The joy has a focus in a person. He died for his bride, over whom he has joy because he sees the finished work of his efforts. 
He is our bridegroom, and he is awaiting us with great anticipation. And so we also run the race, enduring, because there's joy awaiting us there as well. We see him ahead of us, like Peter says, and we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So if we find ourselves struggling under persecution, we're told here to consider Jesus, to carefully look at him, to look at, at his, what he endured, that he endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. We have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. And we may very well face further and increasing hostility from sinners because of our faith in Jesus Christ and that faith that condemns the sin that they are living in. But he has walked the road before us and he has endured that very thing. So what is it that's going to sustain us when we face such things? If not the joy and the hope that we have in the one who is standing at the end, of the, at the finish line with his, <clears throat> with his arms outstretched. Well, and you've forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So first of all, the feminist culture in which we live demands that we add the word daughter every place that we see the word son. But for us to do that here would destroy what's being said. In that day, inheritance passed to sons and not to daughters. That might seem oppressive to us, but maybe that's because we have lost sight of and misunderstand the bride price and the dowry. The bride price was given by the, bride to, by the bridegroom to the bride as an assurance, and it would belong to her exclusively so that if he left her, abandoned her, divorced her, it was hers. And dowry was given by the bride's father to assist the new family and was, in a way, 
inheritance coming to her through that mechanism. And it's interesting that feminist philosophies have so devalued women that a young man is no longer required to put his money where his mouth is. When he says, I love you, well, what's behind that? He's not required to give his bride financial protection against unfaithfulness. But this is not so in the heavenly reality, and thank God for that. So all of us, men and women alike, are like illegitimate sons who have no right to an inheritance. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, we've been forgiven and adopted and made to be sons and therefore joint heirs with Christ. Not sons and daughters, but sons. We are all, men and women alike, now adopted sons of God with a right to the inheritance that's been promised to us. Just like we are all, men and women alike, the bride of Christ. And the bridegroom has given us a bride price of tremendous value. He's given us everything that he owns. And he laid his life down to redeem us and purchase us away from eternal death. So either way, whether we look at it from a masculine side or from a feminine side, we inherit the kingdom of God. And so the point of our, in our passage here is that a legitimate son, one who would eventually inherit the goods of the father, always receives chastening. And that chastening consists of rebuke and instruction and scourging to train him up for the day when the goods of the father would pass to him. If he's not legitimate son, he will not receive the benefit of that training. And he has no right to an inheritance. So rebuke, chastening, and scourging, being shown to be wrong, instructed in righteousness, and spanked. And that word spanked is probably a light word, considering what's being said here. And God rebukes us and instructs us and scourges us even severely for our good, for our eternal good, so that we might become partakers of his holiness. And as verse 11 tells us, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, even so, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So the writer is speaking the truth. We, we just know this in our bones. No chastening is pleasant when it's applied. Nobody wants it. And the scourging here is not referring to time out in the corner. It's, it's severe. And all of us or most of us maybe have experienced this in our own life from our parents. And sometimes I'm convinced that I probably needed a lot more than I got. But the writer of the Hebrews knows here that his words, the teaching that he's presented now in, from chapter 1 to chapter 10 of, in this book of Hebrews, is going to chasten those who listen to it being read in the meeting of the church. Can you imagine being there, the letter coming, church after church, and it's being read out among these people who were under this persecution 
and turning their eyes away from Jesus. And they would realize and be cut to the heart that here they were turning their back on the very Son of God who had been appointed heir of all things, the one who made the worlds, the one who is the very brightness of the glory of the Father and the express image of his person, the one who's actually upholding all things by the word of his power, the one who had actually purged their sins and had sat down at the right hand of God. That's the one that they're turning their backs on. They would have realized that they were turning away from the one who was better than the angels, the one that was greater than Moses, a a, a high priest greater than Aaron, and who had offered a better sacrifice and bringing in a better hope. This one who is a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. This is the one that they had turned their eyes away from. And so this chastening, this this, this strong call to turn back to Jesus in chapter 1 to chapter 10 is, is for their good. God is dealing with them as with sons, chastening them. So here they're being encouraged, bear up under this, receive it, engage with it, don't resist it, don't run away from this. Turn your eyes back to Jesus Christ. It's not joyful. It's painful. But look, look. It's going to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness as you are trained up in it. So allow it to tra- this to train you where to put your eyes. Allow it to train you to examine your hearts and throw off the things that are impeding you. To, to lay aside the sin and to turn your eyes back to the one who has saved you. Continue then in a life of repentance and faith. And from this training, this discipline of the Father, and through his rebuke and instruction and scourging, fruit begins to appear, like a bud first, and then a flower, and then over time, a ripen, the ripened fruit of righteousness, which is nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit, has come from his presence in our lives, their lives. And there's no other way that that fruit comes. And so this is a call by this writer to embrace the Lord's rebuke, to embrace his instruction and scourging as evidence that the Father loves us as legitimate sons. And he's doing this for our good. Now, just to close, it seems to me like the whole point of this, of this section is Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. And understanding who he is. And how are we going to know who he is if we don't read the word, if we don't listen to the word and engage in what it says? We won't know. More knowledge, and th- I know this may sound funny, but more knowledge is the path to, to uh, the inexperiential knowing of Christ, to a relationship of Christ, as we know who he is, know about him, and then we can appreciate him and value him for who he is. 
And that value increases as we understand what he's done and what he's continuing to do and the hope that he has given, the promises that he's given us. It comes from knowing. So Paul, when he writes Ephesians chapter 1, the first part of that chapter, he lists this whole list of one, all these wonderful blessings, spiritual blessings, and he says, God has given you every spiritual blessing. And then he says, I'm praying for you that God would give you something more, something else. And what is it? Knowledge. And here's what he says. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So that the, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, so that you may know just what is the hope of his calling. And so that you may know just what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so that you may know just what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, <clears throat> I pray, even for myself, that we here would come to an increasing knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we, we might value him for who he is. That we might love him with all our hearts. And that we might have a joy in us that can keep us and help us through and endure to the end as we look ahead. Oh, Father, save us from distraction from him. And by knowing him, about him, and then knowing him in relationship and walking with him in our life through the Spirit, oh, Father, help us even to value him even more as we understand more and more about him. Bring these things to our mind. Show us your Son. Father, you are a good and gracious king. And so I pray that the leaders of this church would be faithful to discipline and disciple, showing who this, this one is who has given us these great and precious promises. We praise you. We thank you for the hope we have in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.